Welcome to the Equality Conversation podcast with me, Joy Burnford. This show explores what we can all do to be an ally and champion gender equality at work. Achieving gender balance in the workplace isn't about fixing the women. It's about changing the system to ensure that everyone can reach their full potential. So if you're looking for insights, guidance or advice on how to improve gender equality in your organisation, grab a cuppa, go for a walk or escape for a while and join us for today's conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Encompass Equality. We're the leading provider of practical solutions to advancing gender equality in the workplace and partner with organisations to support the attraction, retention and progression of women. We do this through research and consulting, leadership development programmes, talks and workshops and one-to-one and group coaching. To find out more and to download free tools and frameworks from the number one best-selling book, Don't Fix Women, visit EncompassEquality.com. It's a real pleasure to welcome Natalie Sutherland and Emma Menzies as my guests today. Natalie is a specialist family law solicitor and partner at Burgess Mee, and Emma is a fertility at work coach and consultant who also works with me on our programmes at Encompass Equality. They're also both co-hosts of the award-winning Infertility in the City podcast. I'm delighted they're joining me today to talk about what organisations and employers can do to support women with fertility challenges in the workplace. So hello to you both. Welcome to the Equality Conversation. Hi. Hi. It's really lovely to uh, see you today. And Emma, this is your second time on the podcast. It's good to be back. (laughs) Welcome back. So I'd love it if we could start perhaps each of you telling the listeners a little bit about yourselves. I know you've both had to navigate your own fertility challenges alongside your careers. And it'd be wonderful if you were happy to share some of your own experiences around that. Um, Emma, perhaps we could start with you. Yeah, so I was on a fertility journey for over 11 years, which I'm happy to say ended up in the birth of my daughter at the end of last year, finally. But for a long time, it was a combination of difficulties conceiving, recurrent miscarriage, treatment after treatment, investigation after investigation. Unfortunately, never any explanations. We um, had a unexplained infertility diagnosis for for the duration. And I may have mentioned this on the last podcast, but for me, one of the most difficult things about my journey, definitely for the first six years while I was working as an employment lawyer, was being able to juggle these two areas of my life, my working life and my fertility journey. And that really took its toll six years in when I burnt out. And that is something that's really led me to want to talk about what we're talking about on the podcast today, but not just talk about it, actually carve out a business and a career that's all about supporting employees who are having this struggle of managing career and fertility alongside each other and also help workplaces be able to manage fertility with their workforce. And it's that personal experience, but it's also a bit of professional experience in there as well, because I was working as an employment lawyer for that first six years of my journey. And when I was sort of reflected after I'd reached that point of burnout and I'd passed my recovery, 
I reflected on the fact that I'd felt so alone, like I was the only person who was struggling in this way. And I wasn't hearing anyone talk about the difficulties a fertility journey had in relation to a career. And I don't just mean in my organization, I meant anywhere. So it felt like I was the only one. And I started to learn a lot more about the prevalence of these issues and how common they were. And it, you know, it became apparent to me that a lot more people were struggling as I had done. But as an employment lawyer, I hadn't been advising on it. I could, you know, on one hand, I could count the number of times I dealt with anything to do with fertility in the workplace. And it wasn't because it wasn't an issue. It was back to the fact that this was this massive taboo. So for me, this sort of passion grew to be able to provide others with the support, which was clearly needed, but for me had been lacking. And that's how I came to do what I do now is bringing the personal experience together with the professional experience to try and make sure other people get what for me would have been really helpful at the time. Thank you. And Natalie, I know you're the first fertility officer, is that right? You're a, I remember reading about that last year, or was it two years ago now, actually, thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, it's, it's amazing. But um, I, my, so my journey, completely different to Emma, I was actually very lucky and was able to have my baby naturally very quickly. Although I say quickly, I was still 36. So I was um, older than like my sisters and a lot of friends who've had babies. And that, that all went fine. And, uh, and then we conceived our second. But I was very naive because I was thinking, oh, the first one went well. So, you know, there's not going to be any problems with this one. I'm just, I'm, you know, I was planning it. I had lots of seeing into the future going, yeah, this is, this is all going to work out. And we had a mis- miscarriage when I was, so I went for my 12-week scan. And they said, yeah, no heartbeat. But the sack was measuring 12 weeks because I was still feeling pregnant. Um, and, and I sort of bled at the six week mark and, you know, panicked as you do. But the EPU, the early pregnancy unit basically saying, you know, just keep an eye on it. It's fine. We can't scan you. It's too soon. Turns out that wasn't true. But because I still felt pregnant, like I was having morning sickness and the tiredness, I was really clinging on to that. But no, we, uh, we went for the 12 week scan and they said that uh, there was no baby. And then I had a few months of having to deal with that because there's expectant management where you just do nothing and you wait for the baby to come out. And then that didn't work. So I had medical management. So I had the tablets, which was also horrendous. And then even that didn't work because they were still scanning me and they could still see product, which is a word I hate in this context. Yeah. So I had to have the operation in the end to the ERPC, but I was still having, still testing positive and it was just like, well, what, what, what the hell is going on? But then I had huge hemorrhaging like a, a month or so later. Yeah, I was in hospital and almost lost my life. But thankfully, they were able to put in the coil, which stopped the bleeding, because that was like the only thing, apparently, it was either that or hysterectomy that was going to stop this bleeding and save my life. So that was happening in 2018. And yeah, so I had the coil in. And of course, the coil stops you getting pregnant. So for a whole year, I was not, you know, I knew I wasn't able to get pregnant, but I was desperate to have another baby. Yeah. So then we were, once that had come out and the bleeding, you know, there was no no bleeding and my my period came on as normal. Yeah. We were just starting to try and, and it wasn't happening. So then I was like, well, do I go down the IVF route? But I was, uh, you know, older now than I was. And there was this just, I'm pretty sure I've got undiagnosed PTSD. (laughs) I don't want to go anywhere near any kind of hospital clinic, nothing. 
so even though I desperately wanted to have another child, we did come to that very difficult decision to, to stop trying. My husband got there quicker than I did. And then I'd see friends with, with other, you know, with multiple children and I would doubt my decision again. But my daughter's seven now. And I do think that we've made the right decision because the idea of potentially getting pregnant and having the miscarriage again and, and then dying, it was not something we wanted to do. But anyway, so onto the sort of work side of things, joining my firm and finding that younger colleagues of mine were potentially going to have these issues. I was like, right, well, I just, I want you to be able to talk about it because this is something that junior solicitors, obviously I'm a lawyer. So um, I work in a law firm and because I do family law, a lot of women, uh, there are a lot of women in family law. So, um, so we had a lot of junior solicitors all in their late twenties, early thirties, getting married and stuff. So, and I remember being like that. I remember being of that age where I've got my career, but I also want to have a baby. And then when you add on to that, the possibility that you might struggle to conceive, I was like, right, we just need to talk about this. So having shared my story with my partners and that, you know, this is something I wanted the firm to be an open source for, you know, so that people could talk about it. I knew it had to come from the top because of course it it has to, doesn't it? For the younger ones who need that space, it has to come from the top so that they can feel safe to do that. So I felt like I, I wanted to lead by example, by sharing and being that person that they could come to. And then it just sort of got a name. So facility officer, and then it's really struck a chord because, as you said, you, you read about it. It was all in the papers. I went on Women's Hour and it's just really propelled this conversation, both in the legal sector, so the, sort of the sector I work in, and lots of people that I will meet now will say, you know, I can't believe what you've been doing. It's amazing. We've got our own fertility officer. We've put in a place our own fertility policies. Love the podcast. So I just get this immense sense of joy and pride that um, I'm really changing things for, I mean, it, it started with the legal profession, but we, as the podcast, we really wanted to get it out there so that it's all other professions as well. Thank you both so much. I've got tingles down my spine, the fact that you've both so openly shared your stories. I think it's so important to share these stories because even though it's really hard to do so, I think this, this as we all know, there's so much taboo around these subjects and especially women not wanting to tell people they're pregnant because of worrying about what people think if they do end up having a miscarriage and then they'll people know that they were trying to get pregnant and their sort of worries about the careers and everything else and I think not everybody wants to talk about it but knowing that there is a place to talk about it is is so important when I've heard some horrendous stories of people when I've been interviewing for my book you know people who've been in meetings and abroad and being in a meeting having a miscarriage and going back into a meeting room and not telling anybody and awful really awful situations. So um, Emma, no, miscarriage and fertility issues are very common, as we know, with one in four pregnancies ending in miscarriage. Can you outline some of you know, the impact that miscarriage and fertility challenges can have on working women and also their partners? Definitely, there is a physical impact on, on the, the women who are going through the bulk of the fertility treatment and who experience in their bodies, uh, the loss. Um, but there is also a mental and an emotional impact that is common to both parties, although they may experience it in, in different ways. And when somebody is experiencing all of this, there has to be an impact on then how they can show up at work. When there's this mental and emotional struggle in particular going on, there is inevitable knock-on effect when it comes to attendance and ability to 
perform and stay as uh, focused and as perhaps you would be in other circumstances. And there is a financial impact as well if you're going through fertility treatment um, quite often in terms of being able to fund the processes that you're going through. And that can have a career impact insofar as some people find themselves needing to push more in the careers to have the salaries to be able to do what they need to do to have the family that they desire so much. There's extra pressure around something that is already extremely stressful. But it can also go other ways. I think the real problem is the juggle and the juggle of the fertility treatment and any losses that people are having alongside a career do lead a lot of women in particular to feeling that they need to leave their jobs or at least they need to step back a little bit in terms of the role they're doing to manage stress quite often or to reduce their hours. And all of this has knock-on impacts on other things such as finance, again, um, financial position, but also general well-being. And women feel quite often that they're stuck, that life is on hold, and they, they enter that place within the careers as well, almost like they're in a little bit of a departure lounge, um, you know, wanting to depart to go on this journey towards motherhood. But it's like the longest delayed flight ever, and you just never quite make it to the gate and, and get on the plane. And it's a really difficult place to be in. And, you know, this is about confidence. And I have to mention the impact that it has on people's confidence. Um, when it feels like as a man or a woman, you just can't do this thing you're in inverted commas supposed to be able to do. That really batters self-esteem and confidence. And again, that translates into all areas of life, including how you show up in the workplace. So there's a few examples. I mean, there are so many ways that people are impacted, but that hopefully gives you a bit of a flavour of what, you know, we experience, uh, we may have experienced personally, but also on a podcast, we hear people talking about this and, and, and again, in my, in my own practice with clients as well. I really hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. I want to take a moment to tell you a little bit more about our mission at Encompass Equality. We're passionate about enabling the retention and progression of women in the workplace and sharing our knowledge to help support and inspire others. This podcast forms just a small part of what we do. So if you're struggling to retain senior women, or if you're not sure whether the initiatives you have are working, please do get in touch with us at encompassequality.com. We have a depth of knowledge and research that underpins all the work we do supporting our clients. Natalie, I was going to come to you and talk a bit about the role of the line manager, because I know this is really important when you have these sort of and this is something I talk a lot about, you know, having empathetic leaders and people who are able to, and coaching conversations, being able to really understand what's going on for people, not just women, but for everybody, a kind of personalised approach to managing your people and, you know, ensuring that you're understanding those challenges that people might be facing outside of the office. Because it's, it's all well and good, but somebody's had a miscarriage and they come to work and you haven't got a clue about this. You can't then, you know, you're then adding more pressure on. So can you tell me, you know, I think line managers often are worried about saying the wrong thing. You know, have you got any advice for those managers how to manage others and you know having conversations around this at work anybody listening who's who's potentially in a, in a management position 
Well, I think first of all, it's if you acknowledge that this is an issue, it's a workplace issue. It's not just a you know a female issue or a male issue or a personal issue that you can deal with outside of work. If you can accept or understand that your your staff are not only the most important asset of your firm or your company, but also that they are human beings with lives outside work. So if you, if you manage in a human being way and you're, and you acknowledge that, then I think you'll, you'll get better out of your employees anyway. But yes, being empathetic, but also understanding this, because if you're, if you're a man who has never been impacted by infertility, how on earth are you going to understand how to, to support someone below you? So in that scenario, I think it's, this is where companies need to be listening to these conversations that we're having now and, and realising, yes, actually, it's probably likely that this is going to impact. Nobody's talking about it at the moment because probably not because it's not happening to them, but because they're probably not feeling safe. So how do we how do we change that culture? We're always talking about having to change the culture. It's not just about putting policies in place. You've ticked a box. You've done that now. You don't have to think about it again. It is about creating that safe space, that culture where people can feel safe to come to work as their whole selves. They don't have to hide. They don't have to, yeah. As women, we often feel like we have to get on with things that we can't show vulnerability because it, it suggests that we're, you know, not as, as important or as, as, um, as employable as men. But I mean, that's rubbish. So as managers, I think you have to be empathetic, understand where you perhaps don't have that understanding and then get yourself educated, you know, find out how to, make this process easier for other people and put those processes in place. And it's funny, I remember talking to one HR person about this and she said, oh, but nobody's, it's not important because nobody's talking to us about their miscarriage and fertility issues. So it's clearly not a problem that our people are facing. And I'm like, the reason they're not talking about it is because you're not creating the environment that people can talk about it if they want to. Chicken and egg, exactly. So just thank you, Natalie. And so building on that, Emma, are there any sort of practical examples of what you think organisations can do? We've talked about Natalie's position as a fertility officer, things around policies or flexibility or breaking the taboo or anything like that. You know, any, any ideas of practical things that people, if they're thinking, right, we should be doing something, let's start today doing something to support the women and men in our organisation around this. What could they be doing? I think Natalie made a great point, which is the first step is the acknowledging that Fertility is a workplace matter in your organization too. And as you just said, Joy, even though you might not be hearing about it, it's still, you know, it's still in your organization. And if you want some convincing about that, if it's one in six heterosexual couples who are experiencing fertility issues, one in four having miscarriages, just go away and apply those stats to your workforce. And then you'll sharp get a pretty good idea of how prevalent it may be on your turf. And I think that's a good place to start. Um, you do need policies. You mentioned that I think policies are a great way of providing a framework within which you can operate that gives confidence to all parties, helps manage expectations. It helps individuals come forward and ask for support without feeling like this sense of burden and imposition. And it helps managers know what to do with the, the people who do come forward and it helps solve that line manager lottery that we sometimes hear about on our podcast and drive a little bit more consistency. So putting a policy in place that is clear that it covers all of your employees, regardless of their gender, sexual orientation, and whatever the path they might be suing towards parenthood is, is a good idea. And then 
covering off in that what it is that you offer in terms of support and benefits for example time off to attend appointments is it paid is it unpaid how much flexible working reasonable adjustments particularly when people are returning from loss and people who are grieving and any other support that is available and where to access it and how to access it and how you want people to go about asking for support. So the policy is a big thing, but as Natalie also said, it's not enough on its own. You don't just tick that box and like, yay, we're fertility friendly. That's not how it works. The organizations that are really going to reap the benefits of ensuring that fertility is managed in, in their workplace are those who take the steps to ensure that the culture is shifted, it's open, it's inclusive, um, and it's really supportive of these issues. And that comes down to uh, things like education. Again, I think Natalie touched on that. And HR teams need to be educated, line managers need to be educated, but the workforce at whole could do with understanding how to be compassionate about these issues. What are the things that they need to be thinking about? For example, you know, the baby showers at work, the bring the babies in, all of these things can make a huge difference if we think about them a little bit more compassionately. I'm not saying don't do them, but think about how you're doing them, how you're approaching them, and also how to have the conversations. Because I think, you know, we're never going to shift the culture if people feel too afraid to speak about something for fear of saying the wrong thing. So we need to give tools and confidence to people to be able to know how to have those conversations. And in terms of changing that culture again, you know, there's so many things that you can do from having fertility officers like Nat to having networks that are geared around fertility and baby loss to reaching out to experts who can support you, coaches, counsellors, broadcasting things like our podcast in Fertility in the City, you know, just showing that you recognise it as an issue and you're trying to get information to people to support them. There was always of... Um, showing your people that this is something that you take seriously and shifting that culture. And I think you you mentioned the point previously, Emma, about you know, no two people are the same and you shouldn't ever assume that even one person's experience in different pregnancies is the same either because as Nat, you know, quite rightly said, you know, you had a very good first pregnancy and then the second one was very different. So, you know, everybody's different and everybody's experiences are different. And also, you know, the point about the baby showers as well, I, I was just writing a note down here saying, you know, anniversaries of perhaps when you've lost a baby, I mean, that's going to be very front of mind for you. And it's the sort of small gesture that people can actually be mindful of. Yeah. And you said there that you no know, two people are the same, no journeys are the same. And actually on your own and, and mine, no miscarriage and my or response to it was ever the same. So it's always different. But organisations are all different as well. So there's no one size fit hold. This is the perfect policy for your organisation. You know, you have to come up with something that works for you. And this is where I say your best asset is actually your people and use your people to help inform the policies and the strategies that work for you because they are out there. I mentioned the numbers earlier. And I think once you start to go down the road of addressing this issue and making people that can come forward, you're likely to find fertility advocates within your own organisation who'll be able to help you, who'll be able to share stories that help with that education piece and who'll be able to get feedback from people so that you can find out how you're doing and what works within your organisation based on their experiences. And you're not just trying to sort of shoehorn your organization into what other people have said works it has to work for your people 
And, you know, if, if organizations out there are thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure what to do, that's the, you know, part of the role that we offer at Encompass Equality, working with people like Emma to offer support around whether it's coaching or, you know, policies or anything like that. So if, if anybody's listening and not sure what to do, um, do get in touch with us and um, we, can, we can try and help you. So it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you again for being so honest and open with us. So before we finish, I'd love it if you know, perhaps you could each give me one tip for organizations who want to retain women. You know, how do we retain women and improve gender equality at work? If you could both perhaps leave us with one tip, that'd be wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm a coach, so I bring things back to mindset. And I think that is the place to start to achieve any change. And I would say, just because you're doing something the way you're doing it now, doesn't mean it's the right way, doesn't mean there isn't a better way. But to get towards a different way, you have to look at what it is that you're thinking around things like fertility and miscarriage in the workplace. What is it that the thoughts are stopping you or what are the barriers to you taking action? Is it things like we don't have the resource or it isn't happening in our organisation? You've got to start challenging those to be able to move forward and create change that will make a difference to equality in the workplace as well as well-being and other great things as well. And I think if you hear yourself saying we can't because swing that around to we can if and I think that's a good way to start getting creative and coming up with ideas to be able to drive the change that really we're all here because we want to see. I love that we can't because changing it to we can if I love that brilliant really good Natalie what's your one tip? I mean I'm a huge feminist and um, I just I want there to be gender parity I want women to to reach those high positions and I don't think anything should be setting us back but if uh, and obviously there are things setting us back so our, our reproductive health throughout is something that you know often counts against us and what I want people listening to this to understand is it really shouldn't <laughs> so we should be accepting that women are really important in your workforce and if we need different support because of things like fertility challenges or menopause that's not a bad thing you know provide it and allow women to to thrive in your organization you will reap the benefits thank you both so much and we'll put a link to your podcast in the show notes and uh, Thank you again so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. And that's it for this episode. If you like what you've heard, don't forget you can download the free tools and frameworks from EncompassEquality.com to get started and take action today, wherever you are on your journey. It would also really make my day if you could spend a couple of minutes to rate and review the podcast for others. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode. Mm-hmm.